Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out more about a program that is part of the Wounded Warriors organization tailored for kids who are contending with the secondary effects of a parent's operational stress injury. They've also just reached an important milestone and uh, they tell us all about it. Filmmaker Nisha Pahuja joins me to talk about her Oscar-nominated documentary To Kill a Tiger, the incredible story of one rural family's fight in India for justice for their 13-year-old daughter after she's sexually assaulted. Oddly enough, it was not the movie Pahuja started off making, but it is the story that found her. We look into the real story behind one of the most spectacular boardroom and family dramas in Canadian corporate history, one that pitted siblings against siblings, mother against son, with the Globe and Mail's Alexandra Posadsky. Her new book is called Rogers vs. Rogers, The Battle for Control of Canada's Telecom Empire. But first, commuting is a fact of life for many Canadians, but there are a small group of commuters called super commuters. We meet a man who teaches in Vancouver four days a week, but still calls Edmonton home. Astronomical real estate prices in the lower mainland means it makes more sense. We get the ups and downs of that kind of commute. The principal mode of transportation for this one isn't the car. It's not a bus, a train, even a boat or a bike or an electric scooter. It's an airplane. It's through the skies. They call them super commuters. Now, this has many different connotations. There's a different one in the States. It means you travel uh, more than 90 miles, uh, 90 minutes, rather, to get to work uh, each way. And it's a lot more common in Europe, obviously, because people have many more options of how they can get around, whether it be high-speed train or so on. In the U.S., it's estimated about about 3% of American adult workers are so-called extreme commuters. That's the 90 minutes or more each way. Super commuters is kind of the same idea. They did a contest many years years ago, back in about 15 years ago. And the winner was from Mariposa, California. California tends to have the longest commutes. And this person drove nearly 600 kilometers round trip, about seven hours to and from work in San Jose each day. But it's happening here as well for many different reasons. Obviously, it's a little more complicated given how, given how every spread out everything is in this country. Uh, but take Vancouver, for instance. And here's why this makes sense. The average detached home in Vancouver sells now for about $2.1 million. So imagine you get a great job in Vancouver, but you don't live in Vancouver. In fact, that's what happened to me with this show, by the way. I can explain a bit more about that later. Um, But your job is based there. You can't do it remotely. You have to say you live somewhere such as Edmonton, where the average detached home sells for about $500,000, or Calgary, where the same detached home is about $750,000. Making that move to Vancouver would be in many ways, especially if you have to uproot a family and so on, it would be impossible in many ways financially. So what can you do? Well, how about keeping that home in Alberta, keeping that home in Edmonton, and commuting to Vancouver for work? That's what my next guest does, making that one hour and 45 minute, 800 kilometer flight or journey between the city's airports every week to teach business at University of Canada West in downtown Vancouver. He's back home in Edmonton. I suppose home is all relative, but he's back home in Edmonton tonight. Anima Nasirian joins me now. Uh, Nima, thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, thanks for having me on your show. This has been something, I mean, it's one article and then everyone starts talking about something, but, but the, let me get this straight. You live in Edmonton, you're at home tonight at Edmonton, but you work in Vancouver. Yeah, um, I live in Edmonton, I love Edmonton, and I work in Vancouver, and I love my job in Vancouver. And three and a half days a week, I'm in Edmonton, and three and a half days a week, I'm in Vancouver. And I've been doing this since May of last year, and I've kind of gotten into a rhythm of it. And I've got it kind of down to a science. And uh, 
it's working out pretty well so far. Tell me how it works. Or I mean, I suppose if you go back to taking the job, obviously anybody who accepts a job in Vancouver realizes that, especially in your case with a family and a home, that moving to Vancouver can be prohibitive when you start looking at real estate. Yeah, so initially um, the university there gave me what's called a sessional faculty role or an adjunct faculty, which means they gave me one or two courses on Tuesdays. I would just fly in for the day. I'd stay in a hotel and then I would fly back. And then, um, you know, the next day. So I was only there for a day. And, uh, you know, because Flair Airline flights are just so cheap, um, if you book them far enough in advance, it's like 59 bucks each way, um, plus 200 bucks for the night at the hotel. Um, financially, it made a lot of sense to do it. And by the second semester, you know, they gave me a full-time schedule because, yeah. And then it couldn't do hotels anymore. Financially, it wouldn't make sense. So I had to start renting a place. And uh, that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, at the beginning, yeah, I did consider moving my family to Vancouver. But then, and I did go look at some houses across the city, not just in Vancouver, but all the way out to Chilliwack in the east and all the way south to, like, where the U.S. border is. And right. no matter how I spun it, there was just... Well, finance, there's some parts of it that are financially impossible, right? So you're selling, let's say, a $500,000 home. To get an equivalent home in Vancouver is about $2.5 million. The mortgage on that, I mean, it's, it's like double my salary probably. Uh, the other thing about it is even if I have an appetite to do it, I'm not going to get approved for a $2 million mortgage. Professors don't make that kind of coin, sadly. So especially with today's interest rates and the stress test. So reality is I'd have to get some apartment like a two-bedroom apartment and squeeze squeeze two adults two kids and two dogs in there or I'd have to get like a really shitty old oh I don't know if I can swear I probably can't a really crummy old townhouse Um, yeah yeah and it would still cost double of what I have right now and the quality of life would be no nowhere near as often yeah, I, I, yeah, I, th- I think the the adjective probably works works for that one. So, I mean, you teach business, so obviously this made financial sense for you. I guess good thing for the yeah. discount airline too, right? Because if you had to fly yeah, another sure. airline, it might get a little pricey. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, like Air Canada and WestJet are the other two airlines that that do Edmonton to Vancouver, and uh, I don't know. It depends, honestly, on availability and seasonality. But on average, they're about two to three times the price. Now, there is a reason for that, too. One is, I guess you could say they're a more premium airline. Um, but, you know, they, they give you, like, your, um, your what do you call it, carry-on bag for free. But right. I don't have a carry-on bag. I just use my laptop bag going back and forth. So right. it doesn't make sense for me to upgrade to the Air Canada or WestJet flights. Right. Um, also, it's- I don't know what's so premium about Air Canada or WestJet because if you're on the short-haul flight, there's – no entertainment system. There's no Wi-Fi. Um, so I don't really know what they mean when they say premium airline. Right. I'm just picturing you like the like a commuter getting on a train. You just have to be, happen to be getting on a plane, right? Like you're just carrying the laptop bag. It's just a normal commute for you. Break it down yeah. for me. So just yeah, just in terms of I mean, just in terms of the of the finances, how much how much do you figure you're spending each each month just to do it this way on top of what you already what you already have going on yeah. at Edmonton. Yeah, I spend, well, the condo I rent in Vancouver is twenty four fifty a month. 
Um, the flights average out to about 800 per month. So that's 200 per weekend. Um, and that's including like, you know, sometimes if the weather's really bad, I'll take an Uber or something. But generally speaking, um, door to door is three hours. Wow. So that's I not have bad. That's card. not bad. No, it is not bad. It, you know what? I'm saving time in my commute doing this. If I lived in, let's say, Abbotsford, Right, that's an hour and a half drive with traffic each way every day, um, going to work in downtown Vancouver. Whereas, I live two minutes walking distance from the university, and I only have to do this commute, you know, um, once per week, and it's only three hours door to door. So I leave here. Um, it's twenty minutes to the airport. I have my Nexus card, so I'm through security in like I don't know ninety seconds, um, and uh, I usually get to the airport around boarding time or maybe five minutes before boarding time. It's one hour in the air. When you land in Vancouver, it's a 30 minute um, ride on their SkyTrain to downtown Vancouver. And then I'm home. So yeah, door to door, three hours. Yeah. How do how have people reacted when you tell them that this is what you're doing? Ah, it depends where. If they Ah. ask in, if they ask, if I, if in BC, they get pretty angry because you know, about carbon footprints. <laughs> right. <laughs> about carbon footprints. So that's an issue that comes up a lot. Um, you know, it, even when this story came out, if you go into the comment sections of all the articles, it's all about carbon footprint. Um, now, the interesting thing about that is, and I've told people this and they don't believe it, and they have to go Google it themselves, but I have a smaller carbon footprint flying in every week from Edmonton than I do if I were to drive my pickup truck five days a week from Abbotsford to downtown Vancouver. Right. You did a lot of thinking about what the the commute would look like if you happened to live where you could even possibly think of affording to buy a place in the greater sort of lower mainland, greater Vancouver, far greater. You already factored in how much it was going to cost you in gas, how much that was going to cost you in time. Uh, and it turned out that this actually makes sense. Time, I mean, you live downtown, obviously, in Vancouver, so you have that extra extra expense. But it actually makes sense to do it this way. Oh, absolutely. Um, it makes sense. Um, I mean, like, there's a carbon element, right? So, yeah, again, less carbon and then, like, FLIR is 30% less carbon at the other airlines. But I'll be honest with you, that doesn't that never factored into my decision-making here. This was a monetary decision. Um yeah, so I would have to be in Abbotsford. Um, oh, and then in Alberta, it's the opposite. I'd be like, oh, yeah, good job, carbon footprint. Nima Nasirian is with us this half hour talking about his weekly commute. He lives in Edmonton but works in downtown Vancouver, and he's decided because real estate's so prohibitive in Vancouver that he stayed in Edmonton. His family's still there, and he commutes into, flies into Vancouver and comes back once a week. Uh, it's not that long. He figures it's probably quicker than having to commute some huge distance from somewhere on the outer fringes of the lower mainland to get into Vancouver. Uh, Nima, I, I was thinking about going, having to go to the airport all the time, and of course, that can always get a little mm. a little complicated. Do you have any, do you have any, uh, any horror stories or any, any bad stories from your, for, your, for your first time, for your first little while doing this? I might be one of the luckiest people ever because I can't think of like since May when I started doing this I've never had an experience where like the flight was delayed for more than two hours I think two hours was the max now I have classes at noon um, during the you know like on Monday but I, I never fly in Monday morning I always fly in Sunday night 
so yeah. that even if the flight has a delay of two, three hours, whatever it might be, you know, it's fine. I just get a little bit less sleep. So right. Never what about it. the benefit? What about the benefits of it? What have you found? That, has there been anything that was surprisingly beneficial about doing this? Surprising, yeah. Surprisingly beneficial would be. Um, I think anyone with kids would know this. It's sometimes a little bit nice, and this is terrible to say, to get some quiet and wake up without kids screaming. Uh, so like you know i'll go there and like for three days i'll go and i'll just like wake up when i want it's just like a really peaceful morning i have uh-huh. to make my coffee and like oh it's just heaven right and I then see. i go do my thing and then like 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 the first night i get back to edmonton and it's like 6 a.m and a two-year-old's screaming her lungs off um and then the dogs are barking and my wife's yelling at my son for not eating his cereal it's like, well, reality. So it's kind of nice. what, he, yeah, reality. What, what, yeah. Speaking of, what, what what does your wife think of this? Um, she's she's super chill. She is awesome. She's a she's a really hardworking mom. Um, she's a full time mom, and she does an awesome job. And you know, I've been with her for eleven years now, and she doesn't really nag me. Um, so it all, she it all worked out. That. It all worked out really well. Yeah, like she understands why I'm doing it. Right? She understands I love my job. She knows my dream has always been to be a professor. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she could use a little break for me, too, sometimes. I'm not, like, the easiest person to live with. So. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, just so listeners know, finding those jobs, are, professor jobs are hard to come by, right? They, they don't, they don't uh, they're not, you need to go where the job is often to build up, to be able to build up your experience and then move on. What's, what are you looking for next? Are you going to, thinking of, of sort of, move, I guess, moving to Vancouver is probably not going to happen, but it, this doesn't seem like something you might be doing long term. What, what do you hope to do next? Right now it's working, so, like, don't mess with something that's working, right? But, like, before I, I applied to UCW, yeah, Edmonton, Calgary, there's not a lot of universities. Like, in Edmonton, we got, what is it, uh, U of A, McEwen, and Nate. I, mm-hmm. I did apply to those places before I started looking outside of Edmonton. And, um, yeah, super competitive to get professor roles there. Um, they want, like, people with, like, extensive research experience and stuff, which I don't have. Um, so yeah, the opportunity came up there and maybe one day I end up, you know, teaching here in Edmonton. Maybe one day I end up moving there. I can't really we'll see. see myself moving it, there. It's, so it's, we'll a, it's up in the, yeah, it's up in the air as they, as they say, any quickly, any last, any advice yeah. to anyone who, who's ever thought of doing following in your, in your footsteps, so yeah. to speak? Uh, yeah, the advice would be, there's three of them. Um, get an access card. Get an access card. Get an access card. Yeah. Right. They are, they are a blessing when it comes to going through security. Well, Nima, next time I'm in Vancouver, I'll look for you. Uh, have a, I, I, and I wish you the best of luck with, with this whole situation. It's an interesting one. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Cool. Thanks for having me. Seoul's mayor in, in South Korea is considering a city-sponsored matchmaking program as part of a wider effort to promote marriage and stem the decline in births there. South Korea has the lowest birth rate in the world now. It's like 0.84. You know, two, obviously, is replacement rate. Uh, 
0.84. That's how low it is in South Korea right now. So they're trying to come up with all kinds of schemes to try to get people to families to have more kids. But it's just, I mean, this is happening all over the world right now in many, especially in many developing countries. But but in many, many places, Canada's fertility rate, we found out a few weeks back, has hit the lowest level since StatsCan began collecting data more than a century ago. Uh, the agency released its most uh, its most recent numbers showing that the birth rate fell to 1.33 children per woman, per woman in 2022. That's well below replacement level of around 2.1, I should say. It was 1.67 just 15 years ago, imagine. So we're down to 1.33 at this point. Uh, that sees Canada joining that group of nations with so-called ultra-low birth rates, such as Italy and Spain, Hong Kong, Singapore. I just mentioned South Korea. What's driving it? Well, as I mentioned, it's part of a decades-long trend. Birth rates have been falling in many countries for a very long time now. But recently, simple economics could be a factor as well. Here's Claudine Provencher of StatsCan. Related to, to the economy, uh, for sure. The inflation, maybe too. Uh, we know that younger generations are hit harder in terms of having a stability in their job or even getting a job, being able to pay their rent. In this country, there are also some really interesting regional differences. Big cities, larger cities, have even lower birth rates than the national average. Vancouver, for instance, the birth rate is 1.1, uh, which is below the 1.33 that is the Canadian average. Age is also a factor. Uh, the average age of moms at childbirth now is nearly 32, 31.6. Uh, in Canada, 34.4 for dads. That's up from 22 for mothers back in the 1960s. And there are more new mothers in this country now over the age of 35 than there are under the age of 25. So age could be a factor here as well. We know that fertility goes down more dramatically after 25 years, even more after 40 years. So the longer you wait, the less you can have another child because biologically it's more complicated. So one result of that, either by design or necessity, is smaller families. I was really surprised by this data. The most recent census data showed that single-child families are the most common type of Canadian family with kids now, making up 45% of all households. That's, that's a big number, compared to 38% with two kids and 17% with three or more. So only children are now the norm in this country for families, not the majority, but at least 45%. That's a lot. It's not the only thing driving dropping birth rates, but it is one factor combined. It will have a pretty dramatic impact on our demographics in the future. Courtney Shea happens to be a journalist, also part of a so-called one-and-done family. She's explored the topic for a new article that is the feature article in the March edition of McLean's magazine called The One-and-Done Family. And Courtney Shea joins me now. Courtney, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I mean, the timing of it is obviously interesting because we've been talking about this the past few weeks. Uh, the one and done family, I know, doesn't explain all of this. There's been falling fertility rates in many places of late, including in Canada. But tell me a bit about, about the motivation behind this, because I gather this is one born of personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that's probably why I was approached to write this piece. Um, I I myself have have one child, and I guess the editors at McLean's noticed this broader demographic trend, not just shrinking fertility, which you mentioned, but also the rise of single child families specifically. Um, we aren't the only group contributing to lowering fertility rates, but but we are definitely driving the charge. Um, it is a lot more common for parents to have one child these days. And so 
that that sort of was was our way into this story that is about why people are making that decision um and also sort of the broader societal impact and and that is here in Canada but also all over the world as you mentioned um declining fertility it's it's a problem according to some experts other experts imagine a, a different sort of population in the future but it's it's certainly a, a pressing issue and one that came into focus uh, with these latest low fertility rate numbers. Right. It's certainly a trend. Tell me about your decision, because I think what you do in the article is you sort of explain how some of the things that drove your decision to have one, you called your perfect family shape, the triangle, the one that you have now. Uh, Tell me a bit about your decision to have one only because it sort of fit into a lot of what you then went out to explore about other people's motivations behind having just one child. Right, right. Well, honestly, I mean, before I started reporting this story, I... I wouldn't say I'd given my decision to have only one child a whole bunch of thought beyond, you know, I wanted to be a parent. I I was lucky enough to become a parent and I didn't want to have any any more children. Um, one really works well for us. You know, my partner and I are both self-employed. Uh, we live in a relatively small space in a, in a city that we love. And and the other thing is we both enjoy time to pursue our lives outside of parenthood. So So one just made a lot of sense. For us, um, I think what I realized as I started researching the the broader trend is that there are some sort of key reasons that that people are doing it more today than than they did in the past. Partly, I think it's more socially acceptable to have one child. You know, for so long there was a lot of stereotyping around only children, and and that's declined a lot, and that that's great. Obviously, anything that gives families uh, more choice to pursue whatever type of family they want is is positive. But my story also gets into a lot of the the sort of negative forces that are driving this trend. Uh, Economic factors are huge in terms of, you know, some people feel priced out of parenting altogether and, and many more are choosing one because that's what they feel that they can afford. So with with sort of the economy um, becoming more and more challenging and then parenting getting more and more expensive. Uh, StatsCan also released numbers, I think it was late last year, on the cost of raising a child today. And the average was around 350000 which is, is staggering, obviously. For, that's for a child's life, I believe, from 1 to 17. And then they actually measured uh, what it costs to have a child at home for for the next three years because of how common that's becoming. So I think um, just across the board, parents are feeling pressure and, and that's leading them to have smaller families. I, w- I was curious. I mean, I should say I keep using the word only only one child, and that's because I'm an only child. So I grew up around that language. Oh, you only have one child. So I, I've, it's become uh-huh. sort of baked into the way I speak. But I should just say you're having one, right, as opposed to only one. It suggests that there should be more. I was surprised to see in your article that uh, that single child families are the most common type of Canadian families now with kids. Forty five percent of Canadian households. Um no one seems unhappy with this decision, which is interesting too. I mean, the, you spoke to many different. Uh, parents that are in a similar situation to you. And, and, and you found a lot of, I mean, the reasons for doing it were all quite varied, but everyone seemed quite okay with the decision to have that triangle as their family shape. Well, I think what I saw is that, you know, people are, it's a trade-off. I think that parents today feel pulled in a lot of different directions. So, you know, if one of the parents that I spoke to 
wishes that she had more children, but she waited, you know, until she was in her late thirties to pursue parenthood. And this was because she spent those years building up her career. So, so when we talked about her being one and done, you know, she was, she was sad and, and did grieve for, for the child that she wished that she could have. She wanted a sibling for her, for her son. At the same time, she said, it's a trade-off and I don't regret the time I spent on my career. Um, So I think, yeah, I don't think, Anyone, while while certainly many of the parents that I spoke to were not one and done by choice, like me, you know, for me it just works perfectly. As as you say, I describe my my family, the triangle, as my ideal shape, and I love the life that it allows us to lead on a lot of different levels. Even for parents who who wish they had larger families, I think because they were all so happy to have the child they they had, they were all sort of protective about portraying anything too negatively. Yes, I, I, I'm familiar with that one as well. It was interesting. I mean, you pointed out some things that I that I would have thought of right away, such as the economic pressures and so on, starting families later. The pre- the parenting pressure was one that I thought was interesting. Uh, the idea that parents put so much pressure on themselves. I mean, even just being able to access something like Google puts so much more pressure on parents to to want to do things the right way compared to, as I was mentioning, that you know, growing up in the 70s, they just kind of threw you outside and you did your own thing, right? There's a right. lot of pressure on parents now, and I guess that's part of it as well. It's sort of this, there is this kind of feedback loop happening when it comes to having kids these days. I think that, you know, this is what you're talking about is, is called the academics call this intensive parenting culture. And, and it's absolutely true. Statistically, parents spend way more time parenting today than they ever did. Those numbers are even higher for female parents, but, but parents of all genders, um, there are more expectations around the things that parents are supposed to do. I think what you were referencing before, we see those memes where it compares parenting in the 80s to parenting today. And it's sort of that whole come in. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a bit it's a, it's a bit history has forgotten, of course, a little bit about what parenting was like that. It wasn't that laissez faire, but it was much more laissez faire. Absolutely. I mean, I just don't think there was, you mentioned the internet and that's such a huge part of it. People weren't comparing themselves so much and and then it becomes sort of a race of who's reading the most books, who, you know, who has the most sophisticated sleep training ritual. I mean, my mom often laughs at, at this kind of stuff because it's sort of, you know, in my day, we didn't have like, what, like what sleep training rituals, you know, your kid went to, Go to sleep. bed, um, Go to bed. Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was my um, sleep training ritual. But I think it's easy to kind of make fun of modern parenting culture. And and some of it is certainly worthy of satire. I mean, people were offering me so many books before I I became a mom. And I was just like, really? This is like more than going through university. At the same time, a lot of the economic challenges, getting into schools, uh, getting a leg up for your child, whether that's sort of helping them enter the real estate market, helping them get paid for school. Um, these are challenges that are, you know, really reflected in in the world that our kids are going to grow up in. So I think, you know, it's less about competing over like your kid having the the coolest clothes and more about, you know, the sincere desire to help your child succeed in an increasingly competitive and challenging world. Um, can parents take it a little too far? Absolutely. One of the one and done moms that I spoke with talked about how she'd read somewhere that, 
years, but like reading your kid four books a night was, was really important. A lot of and books. she was sort of pathological about it. She said that she'd be lying in bed saying, oh God, I only read three books tonight. Like my kid isn't going to go to law school. Um, that pressure that parents are feeling today is, is very real and they want to be able to give their child a lot. And, and so one and done becomes a solution to that problem as well. Courtney Shea is a Canadian journalist. Her latest article is the feature article in McLean's magazine for the March 2024 edition, which you can read now. It's called The One and Done Family. Courtney, when you went out to look at the broader impact of this, I think we can all sort of guess what the impact of having far fewer children is going to be uh, over time. But the numbers are pretty, the numbers can be a little staggering when you look at what it means for the workforce and sort of this whole model that we built about younger supporting older. Right, exactly. I think that, and and these are certainly not things that that I was aware of even after becoming a, a one and done parent. Just sort of the implications that the fertility decline is going to have on both Canada and then and then we pan out into the world. Um, as as you mentioned, our system is, is our social security is based on the idea that that more, contri- more there are more contributors than there are people drawing on it and and for so long our population pyramid was was a triangle but but that shape is inverting and so we're going to have less money to take care of more older people and and that sort of throws our whole system into question you know it's going to have a huge impact on our labor force um, on spending, uh, more spending on long-term care, less spending on education, um, and and just sort of the ability to find work in in the economy. In some ways, uh, the next generation may have it easier, but but the economy is going to shrink. So so that's that's going to be challenging. There, have, of course, been many efforts, some of them more sort of uh, some of them more admirable than others to try to get families to have more kids. And none of them seem to have worked. And what's interesting, you point this out in your article, even countries like Scandinavia, where there is much, you know, really solid social uh, services in place hasn't worked. Uh, Places such as Korea, which used to have, you know, where they kind of tried to shame women into having more kids hasn't worked. China, the same where they sort of said it's your duty to have more kids hasn't worked. Uh, It's 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 Interesting to look out there and think, well, what what if you wanted to encourage families to have more children, what would you do? Or maybe you don't do anything at all. Right. Because as you say, I mean, there are a lot of ethical reasons to to argue that there is no place for public policy in, in individual fertility decisions. But but the thing is that even before you have a debate around the ethics, you, you need to look at whether these things would even work. And, and so far, the answer is is no. All of the all of the examples you gave are good reasons for for why governments have not been successful in in raising fertility rates. The the experts that I spoke to, sort of a theme that kept coming up again and again was increased gender equality. Um, this is what is known as sort of the second wave of the of the gender revolution because you know we had women enter the workforce in large numbers starting in the in the 60s but but we still haven't seen the sort of full entrance of of men into the domestic sphere and of course there are plenty of amazing individual dads out there doing all the work but but it's sort of more broadly the idea that that gender equality could help families sort of 
feel better positioned to have more children was was really interesting and and sort yeah. of you, you pointed positive. out you pointed out that in Quebec in the 90s because I was there when they brought in more sort of more liberal paternity leave rules that in fact there was a slight jump in the fertility rate there and Quebec is still a bit of an outlier when it comes to that considering how low it was for so long Right, right. And and so I think the difference is, you know, there are sort of bonuses and subsidies, but it's sort of throwing quick, like it's a quick fix. And what we need is more sort of substantial systemic change. And so when we look at the sort of $10 a day daycare, which, you know, is an amazing promise and and things are sort of still shaking out. But it, but if this is successful, it'll be really interesting to see whether or not this can have an impact on on family size, because it it does help parents to balance the competing demands between work and and family life, which is which is at the core of of this shrinking family trend. Well, it's it was a fascinating article. I highly recommend it. It's called "The One and Done Family." It's in the March edition of McLean's magazine. It's Courtney Shea's article, and also a bit of a biography. It's by autobiographical at the same time as being analytical. Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here. And I just want to add one more thing that the second thing that we could do to help fertility rates is give parents a break. And <laughs> and maybe if parents stop putting so much pressure on themselves and our system stop putting so much pressure on parents, they may feel a little more relaxed and, and a little more able yeah, to. Yeah, no four, no four books a night. <laughs> That's it, Courtney. Yeah, thank you so much. Exactly. Thanks for having me. I've done in my life I've done for my children I know I've made mistakes but I've always tried to do the best by them because I love them The trailer to Succession, I don't know if you watched it or not, that HBO series charted the fictional Roy family's battle over the global media and entertainment conglomerate that they own as the patriarch in the family, Logan Roy's health begins to fail. It is cutthroat. And it was at the height of its popularity in 2021 when here in Canada, art seemed to imitate life. Just as one of the most country's most powerful telecom and media companies was negotiating a game-changing takeover of one of its longtime rivals, a family feud erupted, threatening to tear the family and perhaps even the company apart. This was not the fictional Roy family, but the very real Rogers family. Rogers Communications began, began its climb to its lofty corporate perch really in the 1960s under the young and ambitious founder Ted Rogers, starting with a few radio stations and a piece of a TV station in Toronto. He grew the company over the years, first getting involved in cable, then wireless internet, more media, sports teams. The list goes on and on and on to the Rogers that we know today that is just massive. Now, Ted Rogers died back in 2008, and what would ensue at a far slower pace than, uh, than the succession battle, uh, would then erupt in 2021. It pitted his only son, Edward, left in control of the trust that controlled 97% of the voting shares in the company against his two of his sisters and ultimately his mother as well. Edward Rogers wanted to remove the CEO and reshuffle corporate leadership. His siblings and his mom were opposed. Here's how analysts were looking at it back then. And so this is a fight within the family, not a fight within general shareholders. And therefore, it's quite different than what we normally see in business. 
the timing of it as well. I mean, this was one of the most spectacular boardroom and family dramas in Canadian corporate history. And at the time that it was happening, hanging in the balance was the pending $20 billion acquisition of Shaw Communications, which eventually, of course, went through. That was a historic deal. And part of the reason it was so historic is that it would transform Rogers into a truly national telecom empire. And that was the late founder, Ted Rogers' dream for his company. And again, people thought, Whatever was happening, this was not the time for a family feud. So how do you stop that process and change the team midstream? It just puts everything at risk. You know, Edward could not have chosen a poorer time to start a boardroom battle. Well, ultimately, this battle seesaws before ending up in a BC courtroom where the bitter fight is laid bare for all to see. The whole saga is the subject of a new and very riveting book by Globe and Mail telecom journalist Alexandra Posatsky, who covered this story extensively as it was unfolding. The book is called Rogers v. Rogers, The Battle for Control of Canada's Telecom Empire. And it really takes us inside the dramatic battle for the control of Canada's largest wireless carrier. As one reviewer puts it, she covers the family feud well, but equally well and detailed is her account of the recent Rogers-Shaw merger, which further consolidated an already cozy industry, putting consumers Consumers at risk for price hikes and workers at risk of layoffs, both of which came to pass. Alexander Pazatsky joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Ben. This is one of the, I know you covered this story a lot as a reporter, uh, and sometimes people think stories such as this one, because there's so much in them, so much drama in them, that they almost write themselves. But I read this, and this one doesn't write itself. This is a complicated and multifaceted story. Yes, it absolutely was not an easy story to write, but I think a very important one. Um, Rogers, obviously, is such a critically important company in Canada. It touches so many people's lives. And yet, you know, many people, uh, despite perhaps being Rogers customers or being fans of the sports teams that Rogers owns or, you know, listening to, uh, you know, radio shows owned by Rogers, uh, know very little about this company and this family. And uh, as a journalist, I think it's really important to hold power to account. And so, you know, that's why I was so excited to write this book. And really, uh, as you mentioned, I did a lot of reporting on this. So it was a great opportunity to kind of open my notebook and, you know, be able to tell some of the the details and the things that I had learned that hadn't made it into our news coverage in the Globe and Mail. Yeah, one of the things, it, it was interesting, of course, and I guess this makes sense that you begin at the beginning, you sort of tell the story of how this company grew up because it, it still carries the name of its founder. And it is very much in many ways, and this harkens to all that happens in the future, but it is very much a family business run sort of built up by one person in that standard kind of classic way that we think of great entrepreneurs. Yes, Ted is really kind of like the OG Canadian entrepreneur and such a larger than life personality. I mean, despite having this kind of legendary temper, people found him uh, so magnetic. And uh, it's also really important to note, um, you know, for people who maybe haven't followed Rogers very closely, that this is a family controlled company, which means that despite being a publicly traded company on the stock market, the you know vast majority, 97.5% of the company's voting class A shares, this is the shares that you know actually carry votes, are actually held in trusts that are controlled by the family. Um, and this is actually a very common structure that we have here in Canada. And so I feel that, you know, this book really raises a lot of important and interesting questions about, you know, these types of family controlled companies and, you know, what is the role of corporate governance when you have a controlling shareholder?
Yeah, as we found out, it can be very tricky by the time it, by the time it got to court and so on. One of the things that was really interesting about reading um, the beginnings of the book was that how you painted a picture of the risks that Rod Ted Rogers took over the years. I mean, this was not he did not build this you know, one safe step at a time. He take, took a lot of chances. And it struck me just how well you pointed out the fact that he was a bit of a visionary. He did make a lot of very good decisions that set the company up uh, eventually to be fought over by his his children. But but eventually he did set up a company that was successful. He left a successful company. The Inheritance was a successful company. That's right. And I mean, this whole, you know, fight that erupted in the Rogers family, uh, you know, which by has been described by some as a Shakespearean saga of sorts, like this story has it all. It's got sibling rivalry. It's got corporate intrigue. It's got betrayal. Um, and all of this happens against the backdrop of this $20 billion takeover of Shaw, which really was the deal of Ted Rogers' dreams. Uh, Ted, as many of us know, passed away in 2008 due to a heart condition um, and left, you know, this company for his heirs to run. He created this structure so that his family would never lose control of the company. And now we have the situation where Rogers is on the cusp of doing this deal, uniting the East and West cable networks of the country. And that is exactly why this fight took on such significance. One of the things that's interesting in the book for people who live in Toronto um, is the history of Ted Rogers, his drive, that first radio station that's owned by his dad. His dad dies very young and the station is then sold and he makes it his life's work to get the station back. Of course, he builds something much, much bigger uh, than the station. I think it's CFRB, but he he. he creates this thing sort of out of this drive to to regain what was lost. And it says so much about what he ends up building in some ways. Yes. And it was his dream to have a investment grade company. Right? right. And as you've mentioned, he built this company with a lot of debt. There's actually a book about that called High Wire Act, Ted Rogers and the Empire that Debt Built by Caroline Van Hassel. And, you know, she goes into great detail um, on just exactly how the investment community viewed the company at the time. And then, of course, he does create, in the end, this behemoth, as I mentioned, not just a cable company, also a major wireless player. He had the great you know, foresight to get into wireless and to choose the specific networking technology that allowed Rogers to be first to offer the iPhone. They end up um, you know, acquiring the Blue Jays. They end up owning a stake in MLSE, which owns the Raptors, the Maple Leafs. So it becomes this kind of massive company. And I think you know, this is one of the reasons why you know, I think Canadians should read this book because I think the fight that we saw happen among his living heirs is really a an example of what can go wrong in these types of dual class share structures, these right. family controlled companies. And B really is a story that, you know, historians and business schools will be studying for years to come. I mean, a lot of people saw parallels with HBO's hit show Succession. And I think mm -hmm. there's a number of reasons for that, of course, timing being a big part of that in that. Succession's third season was airing just as this fight was erupting in public. In this very public way, too, I should mention, we don't often see these types of conflicts uh, play out in such a public forum. You know, we know there's conflict in families and we know there's conflict in, you know, succession planning within companies, but we don't often see it 
out in public like this. Um, and so I think that's another part of what made this so interesting and kind of voyeuristic for people. Uh, but of course, an important note that we need to keep in mind is that, you know, the Roy's in succession, they're a fictional family. And the Rogers family is a real family. These are real people. And so as a journalist, you always have to kind of be mindful of that. I think that makes the story much more sensitive, but also much more poignant. Ted Rogers, of course, is one of those founders that that works until he can't work anymore. And so this was his life's work. He does bring two of his four kids into the business, uh, Edward and Melinda. And it sort of sows the, the roots of what is about to happen after. And I, I won't give the whole story away. People know the, a bit of the story, but not all the details you bring out. But he was a tough boss. He was a tough boss on his kids, too. He was a tough guy. Yes, a lot of people have talked about over the past about how difficult he could be to work for. He was you know, very inspiring on one hand, but also if he... If you had an idea, he would interrogate your idea. He would really test it. And he was known to go off on people in meetings. And he did some of that to his children as well, who worked in the company. He didn't really treat them necessarily differently than he would treat other employees. And a big question that lingered over this company over the years as it was growing and becoming more and more prominent was around succession. Because when you have a company that where you have this big personality in charge, there were jokes around Rogers that there was no decision too small for Ted to make. Yeah. And that's a really challenging place to be as a company, because what do you do when that big personality, that founder who is so integral to what the company has achieved is gone? And so for years, people were wondering, you know, was Edward going to take over as CEO? Was Melinda a contender for CEO? And Ted essentially did not answer that question. He did not pass the reins to one of his children, as many other cable founders did. He actually says he will leave it up to the board to decide who will be the next CEO of Rogers. But he does indicate to the board a strong preference for a non-Rogers family member. And that is a man by the name of Nadir Mohammed, the head of the company's wildly successful wireless business. And the board ultimately does choose Nadir over Edward to become the next CEO. And after that, we see a series of CEO changes over, you know, a period of time culminating in Joe Natale, who is the CEO in place at the time when this conflict breaks out in the fall of 2021. Alexandra Pazatsky is with us. She's the Globe Mail's telecom reporter. Her, her book is called Rogers versus Rogers, the battle for control of Canada's telecom empire. So when Ted Rogers passes away in 2008, it's interesting how you lay out how he planned his succession, because as one would expect, it was meticulous. I mean, he, he was down to the every, you know, dotted I and cross T to try to avoid exactly what is about to happen. Right. And and you trace it back in many ways. You described this already to the way that the, sh the voting shares are controlled. That in other words, he also set up his own succession to fail in some ways. He did. He created this structure uh, of trust that would hold the family's uh, shares, the, the voting shares of the company. And he essentially puts his son, Edward, not in the CEO role, but he does put him in the role of chair of the Rogers Control Trust. So this makes Edward the controlling shareholder. And people have told me that this created tension among the family, particularly with his sister, Melinda, who, despite not really having expressed an interest in being the CEO, she said, uh, would have liked to have some say in how, you know, the, the, com the company is controlled by the family. This is kind of the backdrop for what kicks off some of the conflict. 
Right. And, and this is all a fight over a particular CEO. We under, I think people may remember the butt dial, the famous butt dial, which actually you found out isn't really, or the courts found out, wasn't really a butt dial. It was a call that was he forgot to hung up, hang up on. But the, the current CEO finds out he's about to be tossed by overhearing a conversation between two other people that are his, essentially his his people that, that work for Rogers. And then this unleashes this whole maelstrom. So what was the, what was the idea to get rid of, of Joe Natale in the first place? Edward uh, was essentially unhappy with Joe Natale's performance, and this was all preceded by the company acquiring Shaw. So Joe obviously probably thinks things are going pretty well because, you know, he's inked this deal to acquire Shaw. This is the deal of Ted Rogers' dreams, as I've already said, uh, uniting East and West cable companies. And the one thing the whole family was aligned on throughout is the importance of Rogers acquiring Shaw. And what we learned is that, you know, according to Joe's account, which has come out in the courts, he actually called his CFO, a man named Tony Staffieri, you know, while this deal is all being sorted out, they're waiting for regulatory approvals. And he over and Tony is sitting outside of the Four Seasons talking to the company's former uh, general counsel. And the phone inadvertently answers Joe Natale's call. So I right. guess we can call it a butt answer as yeah, opposed right. to a butt dial. <laughs> and I should mention a disputed butt answer because yeah. according to people on the other side of this conflict, there was no overheard phone call okay. or that the conversation wasn't really what Joe is claiming to have overheard. But what Joe is claiming to have overheard is essentially a plan that Tony plans to enact of purging the company's management ranks when he imminently becomes the CEO of Rogers Communications. So just picture that for a moment that you're the CEO and all of a sudden you're, you know, overhearing your CFO talking not only about ousting you, but also about how he plans to restructure the company once he takes over. And so he then takes this information. You know, the other side would say he actually learned this through some other means through monitoring Tony's emails or that it was perhaps leaked to him by a board member. But in any case, he takes this information to the board and ultimately to Edward and says, well, I would like to fire my CFO because I don't trust him. Yeah, he wants my job. Yeah, or he's about to take my job. What people might remember in the next 10 or 15 years is not the incredible success of the founder, Mr. Ted Rogers, but the dispute uh, that is occurring. That's what analysts were saying a few years back as that bitter family feud and tug of war for control of Rogers Communications was playing out. Again, described as one of the most spectacular boardroom and family dramas in Canadian corporate history, one that pitted the company's extraordinarily powerful chairman and controlling shareholder, Edward Rogers, son of Ted Rogers, against not only his own management team, but also the wish of his wishes of his mother and two of his sisters. Uh, with us this hour is Global Mail Telecom reporter Alexandra Pozatsky. Her book is called Rogers versus Rogers, The Battle for Control of Canada's telecom empire, and she's been telling us how we got here. We're at the point now where the feud is about to erupt. Edward has moved to remove the existing CEO. He wants to make some other uh, high-level changes as well. Uh, At first, the family's kind of on board, especially mom, Loretta, and then suddenly that changes. Um, Alexander, where does the fight start? At some point, Loretta Rogers, again, she at first supports Edward's move, then she doesn't. That's the linchpin. This all ends up in the courts and becomes the Rogers versus Rogers that we know. Yes. So Loretta and her youngest daughter, Martha, end up essentially saying that they've been misled by Edward about Joe Natale's performance. And the independent directors on the board also want to keep Joe. There's also the fact that, you know, the independent directors and and the family, certain family members 
are concerned about how destabilizing it could be to Rogers to replace the CEO and the majority of the leadership team at this pivotal moment for the company while it is trying to consummate this deal, which requires the sign off of not one, not two, but three government agencies. And Mm -hmm. so they're waiting on a lot of regulatory approvals. And there's concern about having this exodus from the management team, how that would affect the company's credit rating. On the other side, Edward feels that Joe Natalia is not the right guy to close this deal and to integrate these companies. And so that's why he feels the change needs to be made quickly. Uh, It is ultimately Loretta and uh, Martha who decide to uh, not back Edward's plan after initially showing some support for it, which changes the whole trajectory of this thing. And the board ends up voting to rescind Joe Natale's resignation, fire Tony Staffieri. And that's kind of where the whole thing comes out in public, because we then see a press release come out saying Tony Staffieri, the CFO of Rogers, is no longer with the company, effective immediately, and there's no reason given for his departure. And so this goes off like a grenade on Bay Street. Everyone's wondering what the heck happened here. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those stories that went off like a grenade everywhere, because so rarely do you see something like that happen in a company that has been, despite its some of its rocky times, been sort of so typically Canadian in the way that Rogers has been, without too much drama, right? Ultimately, Edward wins, right? I mean, he, he is in this position where he controls the trust that controls the majority of the voting shares and so or almost all the voting shares rather so there's very little anyone could actually do to to beat him in all this he ends up winning this fight with his own family yeah so the tr- structure that ted set up did give edward complete control although it requires him to consult with his family members so you know i guess you could ask Melinda and Martha, if they felt that they had been consulted and they would tell you that they they do not clearly, but he ends up winning this fight and he puts in he decides he's going to fire the five independent directors who have gone against him and he's going to reconstitute the board through what's known as a written shareholder resolution. And this is where things get weird because nobody, as far as we know, in Canada or maybe anywhere has ever reconstituted the majority of a company's board in this manner. It's very unusual. And it's actually the BC Corporations Act that allows him to do this. A lot of people think of Rogers as a Toronto based company, but the company is actually incorporated in British Columbia, which, you know, came as a shock to a lot of us when we learned this. And there's this kind of uniqueness to the BC Corporations Act that actually allows you to do this as long as you have a certain percentage of the votes. And Edward, of course, has the votes. Uh, The only people who really have the power to stop him are the 10 people who sit on the advisory committee to the Rogers Control trust. And it does go to a vote. And Edward did have the support of those individuals to enact this change. The company initially did not agree that this was legal. The company came out and said, well, actually, no, we don't think that this is legally valid. And the board remains the same as it was yesterday. And so for this odd period of time, we had two boards of Rogers Communications, or rather it looked like we had two boards. Nobody could say for certainty which was the real board. And one of my sources actually described the situation as Schrodinger's board, which I thought was a very uh, apt comparison. (laughs) Again, uh, I mean, Edward ends up winning winning this fight, at least ultimately. I I saw that just last month, uh, his two sisters had actually finally resigned from the board. Amicably, it seemed at least amicably enough as a press release would be. But the character, the person in this, I wouldn't want to say character, the person in this book that always amazed me was, was Loretta. And she passes. And Edward's not there. And I thought of all the things that you pointed out in this book that were that were in some ways 
not succession that you, it struck you that these were these are real people doing real things that was the part that i found the most difficult to digest that this fight had la- led to that especially given how much trouble how difficult it was to conceive edward uh that you go into at the beginning of the book yeah that is kind of a remarkable part of the story is that after everything that this family has been through even the passing of the family matriarch is not enough to reunite this family. I do open the book with a scene from Loretta's deathbed. Edward is not there. I do know that Edward and his mother had spoken prior to that, that they kind of continued to speak with each other throughout this conflict over various things. But the fact that he is not there at this kind of pivotal moment uh, to say goodbye to his mother is, you know, it's a, it's a really big thing that, you know, even with, you know, after everything that they've all been through, even even Loretta's passing is not enough to kind of bring them all back together under one roof for that moment. You know this story so well. What did you walk away with once once you wrote that last word or once you saw that, sent it off and knew that it was going to be, this was the story that you had told? What did you walk away with from it? I mean, I'm really grateful to have been given this opportunity to write a book about not just a company that is so critically important in Canada, but a story that really raises some very important issues around the Canadian telecom industry, around family controlled companies and around how power is exercised in this country. As a journalist, my role, I believe, is to always try to bring light to issues and increase transparency. And one of the things that, you know, I personally find a bit surprising is that we have this structure where there is not a lot of transparency around the Rogers Control Trust, the entity that holds all of the control over, you know, the country that controls, uh, sorry, the company that controls so much of this country's critical infrastructure, right? You look at Rogers and now that they've acquired Shaw, they're an east to west cable company. They're also the country's largest wireless carrier. They've got more than 11 million wireless customers. They own media properties, they own sports teams, they own real estate. And communications are so critical to how we live our lives today. We're all so digitally connected, right? We all saw during the massive nationwide Rogers outage, just how much we rely on connectivity for everything these days for getting around, for payments, uh, for staying in touch with loved ones. The pandemic really showed us this. And the fact that we have the situation where we have this very critical service that is provided by this company that is controlled by this very wealthy and powerful family. And yet we can see so little inside of this Byzantine structure of trusts. And there's also the fact that, you know, as Canadians, you know, Rogers is a widely held company. We all probably in some way, shape or form, if we're not Rogers customers, then maybe we have a pension that has some holdings in Rogers. And so for investors as well, you cover public companies. And of course, there's lots of disclosure around the finances, but this company is not even necessarily required to disclose who sits on this advisory committee. And, you know, recently, we've actually seen, uh, unfortunately, several members of the advisory committee pass away. Loretta Rogers, as you've mentioned, has passed Mm away. Uh, We've also seen two of Ted's longtime lieutenants, Alan Horn and Phil Lind passed away very recently, which honestly just leaves kind of the next generation of Rogers kids all on their own, right? Mom is gone, dad is gone, dad's two closest friends and most trusted allies in the company are gone, and we have this next generation in charge. And despite all of those changes to the advisory committee, 
the company doesn't even necessarily have to disclose this information. I only learned about one of the names that has been added to the advisory committee through my own reporting via sources. And so to me as a Canadian, that's a little bit surprising that we don't have uh, rules requiring more transparency around some of these structures. Rogers is by far not the only family controlled company in this country. We have so many of these companies. And uh, as a journalist, I always believe in as much transparency as possible and in holding power to account. And that's why I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to sort of contribute to what I hope will be a national dialogue, not just about dual class shares, but you know about business and about Canadian telecom and the telecom industry and about competition policy. Obviously, the Shaw deal was so heavily contested by the Competition Bureau. There was this lengthy hearing in front of the Competition Tribunal that you know raised some really interesting issues around this industry that we have that is so greatly controlled by three dominant players. Alexandra, we all thought that when the court case was happening that we were getting a real peek behind the curtain. But ultimately, what you found is that overall, it was still very opaque. And only because of this court case did we for the first time get to see some of the inner workings of the Rogers Control Trust. We got to see portions of Ted's will, we got to see his memorandum of wishes, which was also very fascinating was, you know, there's this great quote from Ted, where he says himself, you can't rule from the grave, but you can try. And it's fascinating to me how much of the story ended up being about the living heirs of Ted Rogers trying to interpret his wishes, quoting from this document, almost as if it were the Bible, this is what dad would have wanted. No, this is what dad would have wanted. And of course, Reading all of this, you can't help but think how disappointed Ted would have been to see his family fighting in this manner. Uh, He's previously said, you know, that he would hope to avoid this kind of public spectacle. Yeah, I guess it's no coincidence being a big literature fan yourself that you used a a quote from King Lear to open the book. You know, people have said that this is a Shakespearean saga, and uh, you can't help but feel that that is the case. Shakespearean sagas tend to be tragedies. Obviously, he's written a number of comedies as well, but I would put this one in the tragedy category. It is very difficult to see this. You know, as a journalist, to cover a story like this is an incredible career opportunity. But as a human being with a family, it is sad to see a family in this sort of state of disarray. We all fight within our families, but we don't necessarily all fight in public. I mean, my family doesn't control a telecom empire or any company for that matter. Um, But, you know, and I think that's part of what drew people to the story was this element of voyeurism of this wealthy, powerful family fighting in public. And part of you does really have to remember, like these are real people and it is sad to see them in this situation. Yeah, the, the opening on the deathbed was very, very touching and a very interesting way to start, too, because it reminded you that these, in fact, are indeed uh, real people living real lives. The company's doing OK, though. The company seems to be doing I mean, it's not great, but the company seems to have weathered that storm, uh, at least. Of course, it was happening. You know, the pandemic did did good for a lot of telecom companies. They kind of proved their mettle through that. But it seems that Rogers has kind of found its footing again, at least for now. There's been a lot of turnover in the executive ranks. So we saw a number of people exit the company after Joe Natale. And then we saw another sort of remaking of the leadership ranks. 
after the Shaw merger, we also saw the company's chief technology officer leave in the wake of the outage. So there has been quite a bit of turnover and not just in the upper ranks, but in the lower ranks as well. As you may have seen, Rogers is currently now on a second round of voluntary buyouts following the Shaw deal. So we're, we've seen just a lot of change in the company. But if you look at the financials, I mean, look, it remains a profitable company. Yeah. I, I, the one fact I just want to put the one fact of the book that really stood out to me was you managed to find out this is a great story that Ted Rogers kept a list of of employees who had called in sick. And I think it was the head of Shaw um, who said, well, "Why would you keep that?" I said, "I want to know." I mean, it's it, it it is it is a story about about sort of you know caring so much about something that sometimes you wind up loving it to death, right? Yeah, that is a perfect example of the kind of micromanaging person that Ted was. He also was legendary for these memos that he would fire off to people and leaving long messages on their answering machines while they were sleeping, which they would then wake up to. Uh, But like I've said, Ted was in the DNA of this company. This company was Ted. And so I think that is why when you really pull back and look at this as a broader story, it is a story of a company that is trying to find its footing in the wake of its founder's death. It's very larger than life visionary founder's death. And that is hard for a company. And you don't necessarily have agreement between all of the heirs of what Roger should be, who should lead it, what direction it should go in. And I think that's kind of the groundwork for how we ended up here. Well, Alex, Alexandra, it's a fantastic book. Uh, I highly recommend it. Congratulations on getting it all done and good luck. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Let's talk Oscar nominations, because this is a really exciting time for a Canadian filmmaker who's made a really remarkable film. Uh, If you think back, and I'm sure you may have remembered these stories from more than a decade ago, about the sort of backlash and huge public protests against sexual violence in India. It was more than a decade ago that the brutal rape and murder of a 22-year-old physiotherapy intern on a private bus in New Delhi caused national outrage and put this epidemic of sexual assault in the country right into the spotlight. It's estimated that even today that a rape case is reported every 20 minutes in India, and 90% of them go unreported, so you can tell just how much that is. Conviction rates remain less than 30% in the cases that do wind up making it to trial, so it is still an ongoing issue in India. The situation though is even worse in small villages where the caste system is entrenched and the pressure on victims and their families not to go to police is often intense. Here is Shireen Miller of Save the Children speaking to Global News on a story done in the aftermath of that Delhi case a decade ago. It's often rapes among uh, of uh, sort of Dalit uh, women who are from the lower caste. So people in those villages probably think that they can just uh, get away with it because they have done uh, for many, many years. It is against that backdrop that Indian-Canadian filmmaker Nisha Pahuja set out to make a documentary about trying to change male attitudes towards women and sexual violence in India. Instead, the story that she wound up finding, or maybe even the story that found her, was that of a 13-year-old lower-caste village girl in India who was sexually assaulted by three men, including a cousin, after a wedding in her village one night. And her father's unwavering quest to make sure that her attackers were held accountable for their crime. The result Result Years in the Making is a documentary called To Kill a Tiger. It follows the family through their journey to seek justice for their daughter in the face of relentless pressure from their small community for her to marry one of her rapists, incompetent and often just indifferent police, and an often indifferent and overworked justice system. It's already won a number of major awards from festivals, including the Toronto International Film Festival, Palm Springs International Film Festival, and at the Canadian Screen Awards, and now it's up for an Oscar. 
And now, the nominees for Best Documentary Feature Film. Bobby Wine, The People's President. The Eternal Memory. Four Daughters. To Kill a Tiger. And 20 Days in Mariupol. You may remember that we had the director of 20 Days uh, in Mariupol on the show not long back. You can find all those interviews, by the way, if you look for them on our podcast, which you can find at a littlemorconversation.com or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. But this Oscar nod for To Kill a Tiger is yet another achievement for the documentary, the team behind it, Canada's National Film Board that had played a big role in this, and of course, for the documentary's director, Nisha Pahuja, who joins me now. Nisha, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much, Ben. Great to be here. Well, congratulations on, on a film that, that when you read what it's about, you think, wow, this is going to be a difficult topic to tackle. And, and it is. And yet you do it in such, a, in such a human way. It's such a beautiful film. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 think, um, I, think, I think people are, are sort of pleasantly, you know, uh, astounded, I think, by the fact that uh, it's not so difficult to watch. And in fact... It is really, somebody put it so beautifully the other day. They said it's, it's actually for them. It felt like it was a love story from a father to his daughter, which I thought was such a beautiful way to talk about it. It is. And in fact, when you look back at the beginning of the film and he talks about um, his eldest, uh, it, it, is, it starts as, as sort of a story about a father yes. fight, fighting for his child under, under unbelievably difficult circumstances. It's hard to point out just how much the deck is stacked against the whole family from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, they they just I mean they had everything going against them, didn't they? You know, I mean apart from just the uh level of of poverty, the fact that they're they're, you know, from um a community which is called Adivasis, they're tribals, they're caste um you know, of course then being the the village completely turning against them, death threats. It was a really really difficult course that they had to navigate and yet they did it with grace and grit and and um, quiet determination. I wasn't shocked to find this so often often happens with great documentaries. This wasn't the story that you set out to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't the film that I had intended to make at all. And yet, you know, very organically, it became part of the film that I was going to make, right? I mean, it became one of the threads of a film that I was making on, on masculinity. And it was only after a couple of years of being in the edit room, like literally two years of editing all this material, this hundreds of hours of material that we had filmed over the course of three and a half years and synthesizing it to about five or six hours of footage. And finally, you know, realizing that we had two separate films in our, in our material and that this, particular story, the story of Ranjit and his family and their search for justice really kind of deserved its own filmic treatment. And, and that's, that's what we did. How did you come across this family? Because, because Kiran's story is sadly one of so many, uh, in, in, well, not just in India, but, but, but in many places. But certainly in India, this is one of many stories. How did you come across this one? Um, I was actually filming the work of the the organization that we feature in the film. 
uh, and you know they they were running a gender sensitization program across the state of Jharkhand in 30 villages, and they were working with men and boys to get them to see a different way of of being male, to emulate a different kind of masculinity, a more a more sensitive, um, a more empathetic masculinity and that was uh, you know that they were working with men and boys the, the program was running for three and a half years and Ranjit the father in the film is one of the men that was enrolled in that program and that's how I came across the story I understand that in watching it I think one of the things that I was surprised by even you know having been a reporter for so long and having dealt with these sorts of cases occasionally in the past was just how present uh, Kiran the 13 year old is in this movie and that is a very that's a very touchy topic when it comes to to victims of, of sexual assault and, and how you portray them and how you tell their story. And I know that that's something that you struggled with and, and, and sort of contended with for a very long time in the making of this movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, from from the very beginning. Right. And, 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 and I mean, even even now, uh, it's something that I that I think about and, and it weighs on me. Um, but yes, I, I think at the at the at the beginning, we were going to not we were going to find a way in in post production to kind of hide her identity, right? I mean, initially we started off not filming, not showing her, uh, not showing her face, and then we decided, you know, that was the wrong approach, and we began to just film filming her like everyone else, and with the with the decision that we would we would hide her in post production. Which we did actually. We tried many, many different techniques to obscure her identity, uh, and then by the time we were finished the film, because it took so long for us to make the film, she'd come of age and she could make a decision about whether she wanted to be uh, seen or not. And she decided to come forward after she saw the film. And you know, I think uh, as 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 you've heard me say many times, the the reason she decided to come forward is because she wanted to celebrate the courage that she showed when she was 13. Remarkable. I mean, there is no greater compliment to, to you as a filmmaker, I would imagine, to have that be the reaction. It was very, very moving. It was very moving. I, I will not I will not deny that, Ben. It was it was a, a really beautiful moment when when she said that. And not just for me, but for the whole team, right? Like we were it, it was we were so conscious of what we were given in terms of this material and the trust that the whole family had put into us. And, and that, that was part of the reason we took so long to make the film. You know, we really wanted to, um, we, we wanted it to be excellent, right? Like it was, that was, that was, a. I mean, all of the elements, uh, we wanted them to be excellent. So we, we took a lot of time in terms of the craft and just honoring their story, being very sensitive, being very mindful, um, also recognizing kind of the epic nature of their story, because it, it is so epic what, what they, what they did and what, and, and what they, what they fought for. Um, so yes, to the, the fact that they were, that they all loved the film, and felt seen and heard and validated was very, very powerful and moving for us and for her to choose to come forward because of her pride, you know, in herself and in the film. That was, was very beautiful. 
And certainly it wasn't without its challenges. I know that, you know, I, I won't compare my experiences in places like China where you go into a small village and you bring your cameras and you're not like them, you're different. And all of a sudden they have all this attention and they don't want it. And, and it can become very challenging. I know through this, at one point of this documentary, and you feature it in the, in the film itself, uh, there is a moment where it looks like the village is rising up against, against this intrusion and this different way of thinking that they think is, is just bringing them shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, that that definitely, definitely did happen, and there there was a lot of tension, and that tension was obviously you know building, and it 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 had always been there, but it started to build over time as it became more and more apparent that the family wasn't going to back down. So, definitely tension. Nisha Pahuja is with us this half hour, Canadian filmmaker, up for an Oscar uh, for a documentary feature she made over several years, as she's explaining, called To Kill a Tiger. Um, it is the story of a 13-year-old girl who was raped in her Indian in her village in India and her father's quest uh, against all odds, really. I mean, the, the village thinks that she has been shamed and therefore she should marry one of her rapists. That's their solution. He decides to continue to fight through the courts, and it is a difficult, difficult process. Um, Nisha, before we get to just your, the way you approach these things, because I know in the past you've you've felt compelled to show documentaries in different parts of India, hoping to change minds about sexual violence and about the role of women, period. But but Ranjit, the father, I mean, at one point you could turn the volume off and just watch his face. <laughs> I, isn't it amazing? He really just has that kind of power. Like his face is so compelling. And um, I think... I, uh, I was at a screening in in Copenhagen, and uh, there was a filmmaker there who said that you know he he felt that every single shot, every single close up of Ranjit of Ranjit's face, you know, every single close up shot of Ranjit's face was like a painting. It was so so powerful, and he he he's a man of very few words, uh, and he doesn't need to say very much because he everything is expressed, everything is there on on his face. I think as a Canadian, if you think of sort of the, the silent farmer type, you know, the sort of strong yeah. but silent, that, that's yes. what struck me about yeah. him. You know, he's, he again, he speaks when he needs to speak. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And just so listeners understand, his, what he did to stand up for his daughter is is almost not unheard of, but it was certainly the, the height of, of, of courage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, in, in that particular, you know, in the context, not just of the village in, in India, but in but in India, and I would say, you know, globally, uh, what he what he did was was really, really extraordinary. And it was, you know, it's part of the reason the NGO was supporting him so much. Right. I mean, they 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 knew, as they say, at, at one point in the film, um, you know, that that uh, he will be. A, a role model, right? He would be he would be a role model if he if he actually sort of pursued this and 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 stayed the course. So yeah, you, you, in the past you you've actually toured a film through India, and I, I I was in London at the time, but did did cover to a certain extent that horrific gang rape uh, that had happened in 2012, and in your response to that, you really felt that that documentaries such as this one can change things. I mean, this isn't just about one family story. This is about trying to to move the needle a bit on a very, very sensitive and, and delicate issue uh, everywhere, for that matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's why I started making documentaries all of those years ago. You know, they, for, for me, they, 
they're sort of a perfect combination of uh of sort of a, a deep kind of abiding belief I've had since I was a child in terms of, you know, like the need to pursue justice and to understand, you know, oppression. Um, and also uh being able to sort of articulate things in, in a way, in through a medium that that, you know, I, I felt was was very important. And so it's a uh, you know, I'd always been sort of also fascinated by creativity and, and and storytelling. So documentary for me became a way to to marry those two interests. With To Kill a Tiger, I think the impact will be probably more global because we're working with an organization called Equality Now, and they um, advocate for gender justice using the law and and uh enforcing legal reform in in the law and they feel that this film has the potential to to really have an impact um uh, in, uh, on rape laws in in countries so that's one aspect of, of of the work that we're going to do and then we're going to do a lot of kind of you know sort of culture changing work work where we're also going to be sensitizing the various systems that survivors of sexual violence have to navigate because you know one of the things that uh one of the things that's really clear and i think it's part of the reason the film resonates for audiences around the world is that the obstacles to justice that the family and the survivor faced in to kill a tiger is not uncommon um, for survivors around the world and if you if you look at statistics, you know, in, in Canada, um, in the United States, in the UK, around sexual violence and the conviction rates, the reporting rates, uh, they're very, they're, they're dismally low, actually. In watching, I was going to ask you that, because in watching it, it struck me that while this is an extreme example, and to many, it might seem like such a foreign place uh, where, where this mm -hmm. family lives, it, the story in itself, the fight for justice, I think is one that would resonate with many, many. How is Kieran today? I think that's one of those things you walk away, because this all, in the, in the, sort of near the end of the movie, uh, a, a verdict comes down, and I won't, I won't give away the whole thing, but uh, that was about six years ago now. So how is she doing? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, she's now she's almost 20. Um, wow. Yeah, she's she's almost she's almost 20. And uh, she she actually is writing or she's actually written. She just recently wrote her police entrance exam. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's really, you know, she's quite seriously pursuing that. And she's also in school. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. You have yeah. a great. So, so listeners understand you have a great quote from the father very near the end of the movie about what it is to kill a tiger by yourself. Yes, he he does talk about that, you know, and and it 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 is that quote. I mean, you know, he he's given us a lot Ranjit including the title of the film. <laughs> yeah. So, They're full, yeah. I mean, even even Kiran comes up with some incredibly wise things for such a young person. Uh, yeah. once again, the film is called To Kill a Tiger. It is up for an Academy Award. We'll be watching of course on March the 10th. Nisha, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for having me. This is a really nice story. Now, having spent some time in Afghanistan, I know I've talked about it before. This was well over a decade ago, obviously now, when Canadian soldiers were deployed there. I had a firsthand glimpse at war and the sacrifices that soldiers make, the sacrifices their families make, and the visible and invisible scars that it leaves behind. I've always been happy to shine a light on the work of Wounded Warriors Canada. It's a nationally recognized mental health service provider dedicated to serving ill and injured trauma-exposed professionals and their families. That includes veterans and 
first responders, and of course, all importantly, their families. At last count, they've helped about 77,000 veterans, first responders, and family members. But one thing they do that doesn't get quite as much attention is a tailored service they provide to help kids in particular. It's called the Warrior Kids Program, and it really provides kids exposed to the secondary effects of trauma resulting from a veteran or first responder parent's operational stress injury. Um, and part of that is the Warrior Kids Camp in the spring, summer, and fall, and it's followed by a six-week virtual program that is delivered in the winter months that really tries to talk to teens about what it's like to live with a parent who has an operational stress injury. Because for kids, it can be a really difficult journey, right? Trying to figure out, they get very protective, they wonder what's happened. Uh, it can be a real life changer. And we've spoken to veterans and first responders in the past about what the impact of those uh, traumatic injuries are, are like, like PTSD, for instance, are like on the whole family. Now, so this program provides kids ages 8 to 16 with age-appropriate psychoeducation on operational stress injuries while helping them feel supported and understood and the uh, virtual program, or at least the Wounded Warriors Canada, it's, they've announced that they're marking their 1,000th child to participate in the Warrior Kids Camp and virtual program. So 1,000 kids have now been through this really important program. So to mark that, uh, Janice Popek and Helena Horlick, who are both Warrior Kids Program co-founders and directors, and they join me now. Thank you both tonight. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. I'll start with you, Jairus, just because I think this is its such an interesting program. How did it begin? What was the genesis of it? Well, the, the the beginning story really starts back in the time when uh, Helena and I were both working out at the Edmonton Garrison military base. So during that time, you know, our Canadian Armed Forces were engaged in, in decade-long war with Afghanistan. And that was really a time period where we really focused a lot on what were the injuries coming back? What did we see happening with these military members? And when we were working with the families, we noticed a gap where there were no services that were able to provide supports specifically around the children noticing these changes in the parents coming back from war. And this was greatly impacting the family system and really impacting the military member as well. And so that was kind of the the, the beginning chapter of the Warrior Kids was this need to support um, veteran families and children in particular with understanding these invisible injuries that were coming home. Because I remember I spent some time in Afghanistan. I remember, of course, the service people over there would always talk about their kids. I realized there was some something going on in terms of trying to explain why the parents were there, what they were doing, what the war was about, and so on. But I guess ultimately when they went home, there weren't a lot of, uh, Helena, there weren't a lot of supports for the families or especially for the kids who would have been acutely aware of any small changes in their parents, because of course, for them, time uh, is so much more elastic that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we used to think that kids, uh, families of, of Canadian Armed Forces members, the more that they were used to having their parent leave on deployment or the, all these long training sessions, that they would get used to the fact and, you know, they would just become resilient. But we actually found out that the longer that we were engaged in war, the longer they were engaged in deployments and these long journeys of fear around the safety and injury of their parent, it had a wear and tear on these kids. Um, and that cumulative effect um, really impacted the kids in just a constant worry and fear of would their parent be OK and what would happen when they get home and when are they leaving again? 
Right. I mean, Jairus, I, I saw this too, I suppose, especially teens, but even younger kids now, if they want to look at pictures of what was happening in Afghanistan then, and I suppose this carries over to any number of things now, they can go find it if they want. So best to make sure that they have, they're equipped with the tools to make sure they understand what they're seeing and how it impacts their family specifically. Um, I know there was support for spouses that existed. What did you set about doing then to try to make sure that the kids were okay, so to speak? Yeah, well, you know, working specifically with designing a child-centered, child and youth-centered program was really our goal. And we knew that military members or first responders, the, the members were getting really high quality services and um, spouses would often be able to advocate for themselves as well. Um, so when we look at developing a specific child youth focused program, it really is in, of course, using the best evidence-informed practices that are out there and gathering, you know, what were the specific needs, uh, what were the effects specifically on children. And of course, their language is through play, play-based activities um, mixed in with education and really hands-on ability for youth to understand mental health, to understand operational stress injuries, these really complex issues, but really being able to, to develop it in a way that they were using child-focused language and really hands-on activities that they could take away, take away with them um, after the program ended. Helena, was there anything that you could base this on? Were there other existing programs in other parts of the world or even here in Canada that you could build off of that that would allow you to sort of, because obviously for an extended period of time, whether they be American, I mean, there were all sorts of countries that were both in Iraq and in Afghanistan at the time. And no doubt they all had families at home or many of them had children at home who were worried about them, wondering about them. And a lot of them went home with invisible injuries as well that they would need to understand. Yeah, you know, um, great question. Uh, we still, you know, what part of developing the program and 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 running it is consistently looking at what else is out there. And uh, we ended up finding there is either one or the other. So right. what av was available um, in the especially in the United States, um, they have a much larger population, and and we often look to them even in their research and evidence. And, you know, we found that the other had, it was really geared towards mental health, educating kids and, and spouses on how to take care of their parent impacted by post-traumatic stress. Or you had a fun camp that was ability for families to go and have fun. The two never met. And, and just, you know, the, the research, you know, I was able to do research myself and um, really looking at what were youth themselves saying that were in veteran families? Um, how do they develop resilience and what are they interested in? And we find that the, the mix of doing both um, is that perfect combination of, of having fun in a camp format, but also we provide them education around what is an operational stress injury, but more importantly, how does it impact them? Um, that's where the unique part of the program um, kind of filters through is saying, well, wait, their experience is, is still particularly important. And if we tackle that, then that's where um, really it's unique uh, across Canada and outside of Canada. Jaris, just for example, without getting into grainy detail, because obviously this is this is private and confidential, but what kind of questions were you getting? Because you dealt with with the adults. What kind of questions were you getting from the kids that uh, that surprised you or at least led you to think, OK, this is this is necessary and this is how we'll do it? 
Yeah. Again, the focus from from the kids that were talking to us was they were really quite confused around the changes that they have witnessed in their parent. And so when those changes start happening and you start seeing, you know, my dad can not go to a sports game and maybe, you know, we can't do those big events because of the triggers that are being initiated, but the other parents are at these sports games. Those are the kinds of conversations that kids are asking us about in terms of kind of that loss around access to experiences with their parent and also feeling completely responsible for the health and wellness of their parent. They take on this responsibility to kind of feel like we have to watch out for what may trigger mom or dad and what can make them better. So there was a deep sense of responsibility to look after both parents, either the one that was injured or the caregiving parent. Um, So especially in the older youth, they felt that responsibility. Jiris Popik and Helena Horlick are with us this half hour. They are the co-founders and directors of the Warrior Kids program. You may be familiar with Wounded Warriors Canada. Many Canadians are. This is one that is centered on helping the children of those wounded warriors adapt to new situations, understand what's happening to their parents, whether they be military or first responders. Tell me a bit about how the, you mentioned it a bit, but tell me a bit about how the the virtual camp system works because it's an interesting one and it allows you to to access a lot of kids who you mightn't be able to access uh, under normal circumstances. Yeah, our our virtual program is really, it it actually came out of the pandemic and we launched our camp, our two-person camp or two-day camp. And the virtual program, um, we realize we've been able to reach now across every province and territory kids and youth across Canada that have uh, maybe not access to supports and services uh, that are around them around this unique culture and the context of mental health as a first responder family. But the virtual program is over six weeks. They get a unique box with their name on it with, I guess, the supplies that they need to do all of the activities over the six weeks. And when they log in, Um, The community that they connect with, with other youth who are going through two unique and similar aspects. They have a parent that's a first responder or veteran, and that parent is impacted by operational stress injury. And they may be living in an isolated community, and they link on for that hour over six weeks um, to really be part of that community of, you know, again, mental health and, and focus on their own wellness. Jaris, what kind of feedback have you been have you been getting from from the kids? I suppose this is an ev- an evolving program, right? You sort of it becomes a loop where you get feedback from them, and then you adapt the program to be ever better. Yeah, I mean, feedback in programs when you're running for children and youth in particular is really important. We really want to make sure that the what we've designed is not only meeting the needs, but wanting to provide those positive stepping stones for access to additional and ongoing mental health supports, whatever that may look like to families or to youth and children. The most surprising feedback has been from the older teens. We know that that is a very hard to reach population and age group, but the access to the program and for teens in particular being so excited, um, that is really what makes the difference is the mindset that they are feeling safe and open to learn these concepts. And sometimes parents say to us, you know, the hardest part's going to get for me to put them on to start the program. And it's our job to keep them in the program for the six weeks and to keep them engaged. And that for us is 
you know, seeing them back every week is the feedback that we look for. Jaris, I get Jaris and Helena, I guess I'll ask you the same last question. Any any successes that really stand out to you without going into again into into great detail, but any successes that really stand out to you and made you think this is why we're doing this? For us, we know that the journey for recovery for through, you know, the impact of these big stressors and, um, you know, we call our first responders and veterans heroes and we know what they do is, you know, just the sacrifice. And we know that the biggest challenge is sometimes the barriers themselves for seeking out services. And I think for success for us is families reaching out and saying, you know, we know that our first responder or veteran isn't maybe a hundred percent committed to the treatment journey. Cause we know that that is a tricky place to navigate um, even the diagnosis and we've reduced the barriers in access and we get the feedback where um, they know that kids they've been living with it for years with, you know, a parent that's been impacted, maybe not diagnosed. And the biggest feedback is when a parent witnesses their child or youth every week being dedicated to learning more about mental health, taking ownership and responsibility of their own wellness and trying out yoga and mindfulness and coping strategies, we know that it it impacts sort of inadvertently. The parent contacts us back saying, watching my, ch- my child being part of this program now, I'm committed myself to recovery. And those stories we hear over and over again of how we've been able to like make the entire family healthy and we've been able to open those doors. Jarrah, yeah. Same, yeah, same question. Yeah, I think like last night we we did our virtual group. We did one of our virtual groups and in the in the teen group, one of the girls in the teen group just for the first time she put on her camera and she said, you know, I just want to thank you all for having this group. This is the first time I've ever felt comfortable to be in an actual situation in a group setting that I can just really be myself. I can be curious and I can just give this time and space to myself and learn about what I need. And to me, I was, that was the greatest, you know, story to hear is a hard to reach teen that is maybe really hesitant to do other things. And this positive experience, we had a music, our music night where we listened to music and made playlists and that really just spoke to her and, I think to me, that's the the great success stories is the the feedback that, you know, a teenager can give us. Well, Jaris and Helena, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. 